Good morning, church. Man, what a beautiful day. Rain, all that. Uh, I, I spent last week in Kansas, so it was like 105 down there, really humid. So this is beautiful. <laughs> it's like 60 and rainy. Like, I, I loved it. I'm excited. But good morning. Uh, open your Bibles, if you would, or your apps to John chapter 3. We're going to be in there for most of the day. And uh, we are in a series called Jesus in 4K. We worship a God that is by nature transcendent. He, he surpasses the reality that we live in and understand. I mean, before the moon and the stars were, before there was plants and animals and us, but before gravity existed, but before the covalent bonds that hold everything together, before time, God was. And God is so much higher and so much greater that Honestly, if he didn't take those steps to reveal himself to us, we may never really have known him. But because God has placed his image upon us and his image upon creation, he has spoken through the prophets, through the Old Testament, that he uh, sent his son to incarnate as Jesus. We can know who he is. Jesus himself was the perfect representation of God's being. So to know Jesus is to know God. And in the New Testament, we are given the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these, these cover the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus so that we can truly know him. And the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, were the first three Gospels that were written. They recount the life of Jesus, his ministry, all of that. And John was the last one. John might have written it uh, in his exile on Patmos, but he writes it to fill in some of our understanding, to bring us a higher resolution image of who Jesus is, to put Jesus into 4K so that we can understand him and therefore understand God. And so we're gonna dive into that a little bit. Uh, I know many of you, and some of you know me as well. Uh, a little bit of my story, I, I went to Bible college in Joplin, Missouri. Uh, it's becoming a long time ago now. <laughs> it, it still seems like it was relatively recent. Uh, that's where my wife and I met. We got married and went to college together down there. And I loved my school. Uh, most of the best friends I've ever made in my life were there because we were on mission together, studying the similar things. And it's college. That's when you make a majority of your friends anyways. Um, and so a little bit of our student life there. Uh, we had classes throughout the week. On Tuesdays, we'd have chapel. On Thursdays, we'd have life groups. And everyone in, in school was in a life group. So it was you and a couple other students with either a professor or with an upperclassman. And uh, I was uh, really involved in the school. So I served in a lot of different ways. I was a life group leader. I had some underclassmen that I was leading and discipling. Uh, my brother-in-law ended up being one of those people, which was a, just a funny coincidence. Um, but I was really involved. Uh, I, w I had a couple different jobs on campus. And one of the ways that I served uh, at school was to be part of like planning committees for events and things like that. So the first meeting that we had together, I still remember pretty well, uh, because there was about 10 of us leaders in a room and we were going to be planning a worship night that was coming up. I was excited. This is my opportunity to lead, to do some big event like I've never done before. And also, I'm in the room with these 10 other great like, student leaders, um, all of them top, like, top of their classes, great people, very involved with their church. Um, and I like them. I think they're cool. I want them to think I'm cool. 
So it came time to share your uh, thoughts on what we could maybe do, and I had a half-baked idea like right off the bat. Like, I, I got something down. I haven't really thought about it that much, but I got something. So I shared my theme, shared some scripture, maybe an interactive element that we could do. And to my surprise, pleasant surprise, it went over pretty well. I was excited. People were liking it, they were talking. But then tragedy struck. Um, a senior to my left shared his idea, and it was fantastic. <laughs> it was great. He had a great idea. It was a great theme. He had like important scriptures that like fit really well with it. He had songs that complemented the theme and the idea. And the week before that, there was a, a news article that came out of something that happened, and he was using that as an illustration, and it fit perfectly, and I was livid. Like, how dare he show such a great idea of how to worship God? <laughs> My idea was, I mean, admittedly not as good. Um, to be honest, I don't remember a lick of my idea. Like, it's, it's not up there at all. I can't even begin to guess what my idea was um, because we obviously went with his idea. And just to share a little bit of, like, his illustration that he wanted to do. So it was in 2012. Uh, a lady in Spain is part of this historic church, and there's, a painting, there's some paintings in the church, historic churches. They call them frescas. And there's this like 80-year-old one by an, an artist, um, Behold the Man. And she was going to restore this image, and she messed up in a big way. I think we have an image that we can show you of it. <laughs> behold the Man? More like Behold the Muppet, maybe. You know, like, yeah. Uh, and so his illustration of using that is that we need to be very careful of who we let shape our image that Jesus is the only one that can truly restore the image of God in us, that we cannot let the world, ourselves, our arrogance, our pride, um, our priorities, any other influence in our lives that is trying to compete with us and tell us who we are, the lies of Satan's that are trying to shape and tear down this image of God in us, we must not let them do that because they are unskilled, they are untrustworthy, that Jesus is the only skilled craftsman that can truly create this image of God in you. That'll preach. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we obviously went with that idea, and it was great. And uh, you know, I, I'm in school to prepare for ministry, but pride could impact all of us, and it did impact me that day. His idea brought glory to God, but I wanted the glory of bringing glory to God. Luckily, I didn't do anything dumb. We ended up going with this idea, but I st and that worship night ended up being one of the best events that I had in all of like, Bible school. And I remember being in the event with like a thousand people, and this God whom I love is wholeheartedly being worshipped. These people that I live with and go to class with, the, these students that I love are, are wholeheartedly worshiping God. The truth of God is being preached and they're hearing it and they're taking it to heart. Everything that I was hoping for an event is being happen, is happening right before me. It just wasn't my idea. And I'm grateful that in that moment I was able to be humbled and I was able to join into the worship. But it was a tough day for me. Actually, it was a tough, like, couple of weeks leading up to that. So maybe we can learn a little bit from John on how to handle such situations. We're going to take a look at John the Baptist, 
And so we're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. We'll finish out the chapter there. And the main focus of today will be on Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist will encounter conflict with God's plan, and how will he respond to it? If you remember, previously in this series, we had Jesus revealed, John 1.1. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the word of God was preached. All things, that were, all things were made through him, and he, Jesus, is the light that shines in the darkness. In chapter 1, verse 6, we're introduced to John the Baptist in this story. And John 1, 6 through 7 says, There was a man sent from God. Remember, John the Baptist is sent from God, whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. That's his mission. John the Baptist was a big deal, huge deal. He was probably more influential than Billy Graham was during his ministry. John the Baptist was sent by God to go before Jesus to be a witness of who Jesus is in order to reveal Jesus's identity to the world. John the Baptist was huge. He was one of the most influential people in all of Judea. He was visited by Pharisees and Sadducees, by scribes and religious leaders and political leaders and just ordinary people from all over the place. And he was able to, all of those powerful people, openly rebuke them for their sin and call them to repentance. This will eventually lead to his death because he calls out King Herod on his sin. And he gets a little touchy about that. Later in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is asked about John the Baptist. And Jesus' response is to say that John the Baptist was one of the greatest people ever born. That's a huge deal. That is a rare compliment from Jesus to be like, yeah, this guy, John, greatest person ever. Tell you. So Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John is hugely influential. He is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the second Elijah, and in chapter one, we see Jesus go to the Jordan River to visit John the Baptist. John is at the river, he's doing his ministry, and he's being questioned by all these religious leaders as to whether or not John the Baptist was the Messiah. But John knew very well and argued strongly that he was in fact not the Messiah, but rather he was the person sent before the Messiah to make his path straight. John was not the headliner of the concert, he was the opening act. He was not the main course at the fancy restaurant, he was the the bread they sent out first as the appetizer. He was not the the movie that everyone is excited about, the blockbuster film. He was the trailer that they released ahead of time so that you're excited about it. His job was to get people ready for the Messiah, to get people excited and expectant like a good trailer does for a movie or an opening act for a concert. So Jesus goes to John. John recognizes Jesus immediately, and he declares to everyone that's listening, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. 
and John bore witness, I saw a spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen him, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John gives this powerful witness. And John's had several interactions with Jesus throughout his ministry. I mean, John was there to baptize Jesus. He was there when the Spirit descended on a dove like Jesus. Jesus, John the Baptist kind of started Jesus' ministry with his declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. Even several of John's disciples left John to go follow Jesus, and John encouraged that. That is rare. It is rare for a rabbi or a religious teacher to intentionally encourage his disciples to follow someone else. You have to have a really good reason to take these people, this, this influence that you have, and push it towards Jesus. And maybe he just had a good reason. And that brings us to today's passage. So that was the recap of the story. And, but to, in today's passage, Jesus is reunited with John the Baptist. And this is, will actually be kind of the last recorded uh, interaction where both of them are kind of in the same area doing something together. Jesus and his disciples, John and his disciples are both in the same place. Uh, they're at the Jordan River, uh, somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem. There's, there's the Jordan that connects that area. And they're baptizing because there's a lot of water there. And if you remember uh, a, while, a couple weeks back, we talked a little bit about this baptism that John is doing. This isn't the baptism that we do today. Uh, today, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, um, so that you may inherit eternal life. This Holy Spirit is a seal guaranteeing your inheritance um, and eternal life. Uh, but this is before Jesus was uh, died and completed his ministry, rose again, ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. So that is not the baptism they're doing now. Uh, the baptism that they're doing now is actually talked about a little bit later in the Bible in Acts 19. So the Apostle Paul, one of the followers of Jesus, um, encounters a group of Gentiles that had been baptized by John, so they know of John's baptism of repentance and uh, to prepare the way for the Messiah, but they had yet to really hear about Jesus in, in this new Christian, this new way. And so John, uh, Paul says to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. So this is John's baptism, the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and were prophesying. So John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, and repentance is, was a fairly common word at that time. So it, it just, it's similar to like our about face or to turn away from. It, it, it's that similar sort of thing, to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their previous life, and to turn towards Jesus. Uh, when it comes to first century, like, ceremonial washings and baptisms and those sorts of things, because it says that John's disciples was having an argument about um, ceremonial washings, uh, to, be, to be frank, like, a lot of that is kind of foggy when we're talking about first century Jewish 
washings and baptisms because they had a lot of different reasons. There were these uh, like baptistry pools. They would use the Jordan River a lot of times. Uh, at the Temple Mount, there's dozens and dozens of these mikvahs, these pools that people would be baptized into as part of their like sacramental system to go and make sacrifices. Sometimes rabbis would have like different purposes for their ceremonial washings, their cleansings. Um, but remember, Jesus didn't come just to redo everything that was being done. Jesus came to bring the true reality behind these things into greater clarity. Jesus came to bring things into 4K, to higher resolution. So these ceremonial washings and baptisms they are doing are just the shadow of the true reality that's fulfilled in Jesus. They baptize with water, while Jesus baptizes one day with the Holy Spirit and fire. So at the Jordan, Jesus and his disciples, John and his disciples, commotion of a, a, a suit. I don't know what that word is, but a, a commotion happens. And um, Jesus is gaining prominence. Jesus is gaining disciples. The people that used to go to John are now going to Jesus. And I don't really know exactly what the issue is. Maybe it was a pride thing. Maybe it's influence, attention, authority. But whatever is happening here as people are going to Jesus instead of John, John's disciples are having a hard time with it. They are struggling. But here we have John the Baptist, his life's mission. John the Baptist's whole ministry is being completed before his very eyes. He came to prepare the way for the Messiah, and the Messiah is here right before him, and the people that he was getting ready are going to him. Everything that he was meant to do is happening right now. And he's not getting maybe the glory or the attention that some of his disciples thought he should get. He's not getting his year-end bonus. He's He's not getting some of that recognition. So what do you do when God tells you to do something? You do it really well, and the glory goes to God, and you don't get the recognition. What do you do in those moments? Well, let's see what John does. Maybe we can learn from him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John has been very consistent in all of his interactions throughout Scripture that he continually reminds everyone that he, he, that he interacts with that he is not the Messiah. Yes, John is great. Remember, Jesus said that he was the greatest person ever born. He is the greatest Old Testament prophet. So John responds to his disciples after considering their grievance. He responds and tells them this parable, this word illustration. John's relationship with Jesus is like a best man and a bridegroom. That's who they are. This isn't his wedding. This isn't his concert. He is the appetizer before the meal. He is the opening act of someone else's concert. He is the trailer for the real movie. He is the best man at the wedding. He recognizes who he is. He recognizes who Jesus is. And it fills him with joy. 
Uh, some things about Jewish weddings, just to help catch you up a little bit. Uh, especially first century Jewish weddings, kind of different than uh, the, the weddings nowadays, for sure. Um, one thing is that it was far more focused on the bridegroom. It's far more focused on him. Today's weddings tend to focus a little bit more on the bride. Uh, wedding, weddings would usually oftentimes last like a week. So that's a lot of PTO to use. It's a long time. Um, also, weddings would happen kind of quickly. So like they would be relatively unannounced sometimes. They would, they would just start and you would have to make really quickly. See, the friends of the bridegroom would travel before the bridegroom and to, ma and to make sure that uh, when the bridegroom arrived, everything was ready so that the celebration could begin. The, the best man was a big deal. I mean, he was there to, um, he was the wedding planner. He was the best man. He was the herald of the coming bridegroom plus a little security role too. Like he was a big deal. And he was the center of attention, the center of importance, the uh, center of planning and commotion and all of that. But the moment the bridegroom arrives, all of the attention goes to them. And that's how it should be. Uh, I got this shirt um, about 10 years ago um, when I was in college. And uh, I got it at my best friend's wedding. So he, he was getting married, and I was one of his groomsmen, and we went on this bachelor party. Uh, we were camping in the Ozarks, and we were all Bible college nerds, so we picked one of the best men of the Bible and got his, got his most famous quote and put on shirts. And we were just boys being boys in the fort. It was, it was fun. We, we had a good time. We had a good time. Um, and first century Jewish weddings, very different than today's weddings, but there are some similarities that kind of carry through in there. Because um, I got to dress a little bit better than most of the people that were there. When I walked in, I walked into music and everyone was kind of watching me. I got to be on stage and the lights were on me. And then the moment my friend entered, everyone turned their back on me. And we were all excited because this, these people that we loved were now the center of attention. I got to see my best friend get married to, uh, to a woman that I really, like, she was also a good friend of mine, and it was this beautiful thing. And it brought joy to me. And that's what happens when you love someone and they get, like, the glory that they deserve. And this seems to be the mindset of John the Baptist. He's just glad to be there as a witness, to prepare the way for the kingdom of God. So John is fulfilling his ministry. He has gotten people ready for the Messiah. He has announced his coming to everyone that will listen. Jesus, is the, Jesus the bridegroom is right now before his very eyes gaining disciples, and he does not react with pride or jealousy or ambition. No, his response is joy. To read verse 29 through 30 again, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that brings us to today's big idea. He must increase, but I must decrease. The importance of John must decrease. The importance of Jesus must increase. This isn't an either or, this is this both needs to happen because Jesus is the Messiah. He is the coming bridegroom. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a, hey, you know, it would be nice if this happened. No, this has to happen. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the reality of worship that we see all throughout Scripture, that we find all throughout the Bible. If you want God's presence in your life to grow, if you want to become more like Jesus and experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you want to follow Jesus with everything that you are, that also means that you need to decrease. If you want to follow Jesus with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, that means that anything that is taking your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength away from God needs to be cut out. It needs to be decreased because God will not increase in your life if these things are so overbearing that they take his place. They need to decrease. And later in Jesus' ministry, he's talking about what the cost of following him will be. And in Luke 9, 23 through 25, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses and forfeits himself. You cannot have two masters. You cannot have two competing priorities. You cannot go two directions at once. If you want to follow Jesus, you must pick up your cross and follow him. What does it mean to pick up your cross? Well, what did it mean for Jesus to pick up his cross? That means that he sacrificed everything that he was, everything that he is, for the people that he loved. And so if you want to pick up your cross and follow him, that means that you sacrifice everything that you are, everything that you have, for the God that you love. To pick up your cross and follow him. Jesus is the bridegroom. And after John the Baptist's response that he must increase but I must decrease, the narrator takes over. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all, and he who bears witness that he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets this seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he, ha for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. John 3, 31 through 35. Jesus comes from heaven as above all. We, there are witnesses that prove who he is along with his miracles. He has the spirit without measure. Unlike the prophets of old, there is no limitation when it comes to Jesus. The Father loves Jesus and has placed everything into his hands. And that brings us to verse 36. The capstone of this message, the ending of the chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. However, there is a warning. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not obey what he commands, the wrath of God remains on you. And I will not tiptoe around this passage or temper it in any way. We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. There will be a judgment for our trespasses. However, while we were still enemies of God in open rebellion against him, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place, that he would take the judgment for our sins, that he would stop the wrath of God so that we could have the inheritance of Jesus and follow him. You cannot live for yourself and at the same time live for God. It's one or the other. He must increase, but you must decrease. But to obey Jesus, he is the Lamb of God. He is the bridegroom. And if you believe in Jesus and you obey what he commands, you will see eternal life and he will increase in your life. If it's time for you to repent of your sins, if it's time for you to place your trust in Jesus and to begin to obey what he has commanded, I want to invite you to follow him, to place your trust in him. After I'm done speaking up here, uh, the music will play while we're taking communion, and we'll have some decision coaches up here that would love to talk with you and help you navigate those decisions, to pray with you. so that God may be real in your life. And I want you to remember that, that passage that I talked about where J- John is the greatest person ever born. Well, the second part of that, of Matthew eleven eleven, is that John is the greatest, but the least in Jesus' kingdom is even greater than him. And I want to invite you to live a life that John the Baptist could only dream of, to live in an intimacy with God that John the Baptist could only fathom, that he never got to experience, even as the greatest person ever. That life can exist for you. And for those of you that have already, like, decided to follow Jesus and put your faith and trust into him, obey him. Make sure that he is increasing in your life, that he is taking the priority And I promise you that if you decrease, you sacrifice the things to put him on his throne and put him as number one in your life, you will find joy. You will find life change. You will find overflowing power in the Holy Spirit. And God will be real in your life. One of the ways that we worship uh, each week is that we take communion together. Communion is a symbol of Jesus' death. It's an act of remembrance. The bread and the juice are representations of his sacrifice. The bread represents his body that was broken and beaten in our place. The juice represents his blood that was spilled for us. He was our sacrificial lamb that makes us holy and pure before our God. And so if you're a Christian, if you've made that decision to follow him, I encourage you to take communion with us today. If you haven't made that decision, I encourage you to take this time to pray, to think, or to come up front and talk to one of our decision coaches. God is good.
Would you please take communion with us today? Also, a little pro tip on the communion, take the bread first over the juice so it's not as messy. It just works out better that way. But uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for who you are and for your love that while I was still living in active rebellion, you loved me and you loved me enough to die for me. God, may I be humbled before you. May I decrease so that you may increase. May I live such a life that is in sacrifice to you that you may be known and glorified in every way. And God, I pray for the people in this room that you would speak to them and draw near, that your Holy Spirit would move in power, and that they would truly know you. We wish to worship you through this communion. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As the music plays, I encourage you to take communion or to come on up. We'll have some decision counselors ready.